If this is your first time here, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here and that you've chosen to worship with us. Um, by the way, we have a great team uh, of people out at the guest services desk out in the commons who would love to help you with any questions you have, like uh, what is the Fellowship Greenville Church? What is that? What's a fellowship church? Uh, who we are, why we are, what's going on here? And one of the things that we do want you to know about us is that most often, you attend here on a regular basis, most often you'll find that we are studying our way through long sections of scripture, our whole books of the Bible. But right now, we're working our way through a topical summer sermon series that we've entitled Church Matters. Specifically, why the local church matters, and we're making the case that in a day when many people outside and inside the church don't think the church matters anymore, as far as God is concerned, the church matters every bit as much today as it did in the days when it first began. So as far as God is concerned, nothing's changed. And we've been saying over and over again that the church matters because it matters to Jesus. Jesus told Peter and us that he would build and establish his church and the gates of hell wouldn't tear it down. He's, he, he said that he would protect and preserve his body, his bride, his church until he comes back for the church in the last days, which I believe we're living in. And the point is, if the local church matters to Jesus, then it has to matter to the followers of Jesus. And to make the case that the church matters, we've been looking at the matters of the church, things like why church membership matters, why congregational worship matters, why healthy church leadership matters, why baptism matters, why preaching matters, why the next generation matters, and what didn't Matt and his team do a great job last week? It just knocked it out of the park. We've been looking at things like that, and today we're going to look at something else that matters, but it may not be something that you've thought much about, and I'm going to hold off telling you what that something else is for a while, so stay with me uh, while I set the context for what we're going to talk about today. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is that uh, you can read it over and over again, and the Holy Spirit still gives you new insights. Like, you can, uh, you can read the same passage several times. You can, you can hear uh, sermons on the, same, on the same passage several times, and then all of a sudden, you know, you think you know it, you think you know what it's all about, and the Holy Spirit just opens it up in a way that brings that, that old passage, that old story to life again. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think most of us do. So I want you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 19, but while you are turning there, I want to take a pit stop in Luke 15, but you go ahead and turn to Luke 19. And I want to say right up front that uh, I got a lot of great insights from an author, speaker, professor named Preston Spink Sprinkle. He's got a book called Embodied. It's really good. So I want to give a shout out. Thank you, Preston, for what I've learned from you. But Luke 19 is a story about Jesus and Zacchaeus, Jesus and his encounter with the tax collector Zacchaeus. And for many of us, uh, this is a familiar story, so familiar, in fact, that we might be tempted to think, oh, yeah, Zacchaeus, yeah, he's the wee little man who climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Yep, know that story from Sunday school. Sang the song, still goes through my mind, can't get it out of my head sometime. But, okay, maybe so, maybe so. But I'm going to go out on a limb here. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb here. And I'm going to tell you that I think there's something new and fresh in this story that you may not have ever seen before. So, um, for, but before we get to Luke 19, first, 
pit stop in Luke 15. In Luke 15, verse 1, Luke tells us something that sets up what's going to happen in Luke 19. It's a brief statement, never really paid that much attention to it before. Luke 15, verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. They were all trying to get close to Jesus. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, that you know that Jesus would go out of his way to reach sinners, like the poor who was, con and the religious elite said, if you were poor, then that meant that you were a sinner. But he would go out of his way to reach the poor, the outcast, the socially marginalized. He hung out with tax collectors and, and sinners, or to put it another way, Jesus hung out with the people that rule book checklist uh, religious elite of his day despised and looked down on with contempt. And so consequently, all of these kinds of people are drawing near to Jesus. Now hear me. They were not drawing near to Jesus because they believed that Jesus affirmed or condoned their lifestyles or that Jesus didn't care how they live. Like, you know, Jesus just this cool hippie rabbi dude that who just who goes around saying, hey, live any way that you want to. It's all good. It's all good. I'm cool with it. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. I mean, just read the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the people, these people in the crowds, they heard, many of them heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount, either on the Mount or on the plain. Jesus, I'm sure he repeated a lot of his messages. But the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most ethically stringent teachings in all of religious history. I mean, Jesus not only called out the sin of murder, he called out, he called out hatred in your heart. He, he, he not only called out adultery, but he called out the sin of lust in your heart. He affirmed the sanctity of one man, one woman, lifelong marriage, and in doing so, he affirmed male and female genders. He called out uh, he uh, called out taking revenge. He called out showing favoritism. He called out acting like a righteous person in public, but uh, not practicing righteousness in private. He told people not to store up treasure on earth, but to lay up treasure in heaven. He said, you can't serve God and money. You can't serve two masters. He said, not one of God's commandments can be ignored or disobeyed without serious consequences. He said, the law and the prophets can be summed up in this statement, do to others as you'd have them do to you. He said, get this, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he said, be perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. Yet for sure, all the people in the crowds following Jesus absolutely knew that Jesus held to and taught really high ethical, moral standards. But still, still, they were drawn to him, which blows my mind. The most unholy people on the planet wanted to get up close and personal to the most holy man on the planet. Why? Push pause. I was thinking about this, and my mind made a connection to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23, where Paul says that the church is the body of Christ. Meaning the local church is the physical, tangible presence of Christ on earth today. Now think with me about this. When Jesus was here 2,000 plus years ago, he was the very presence of God on earth. Jesus was the physical presence of God on earth as in Emmanuel. He was God with us. And God with us 
lived briefly, died violently, rose unexpectedly, as Will Willimon likes to say. And when he rose from the dead, he ascended back to his Father in heaven, and he sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of everyone who puts their faith in him. So just as Jesus was God in a body in the days that he lived on this earth, so we are Jesus in a body. The physical, tangible presence of Jesus in our community. And that connection got me thinking, if sinners and tax collectors were drawn to Jesus, if they were magnetically attracted to Christ, and if we are the presence of Christ in our community, my question is, are modern day tax collectors and sinners drawn to us? Mm, not so much. In fact, a, year, a few years ago, there was a book entitled, Lord, Save Us From Your Followers, which is interesting because the title is a prayer calling on Jesus to save, but the reason we need saving is because we're so beaten down by his followers. Sad. So how is it that the most holy man who ever lived attracted the most unholy people who ever lived? Now, when I read the Gospels I, and I see Jesus, he's amazing, he is compelling. But when I look at Christianity as a whole, when I look at the church as a whole, there's a gap between what I see Jesus doing and how I see the church living. In fact, there was another startling book written almost 15 years ago. It was a study of the perceptions of people outside of the church the perceptions they had about Christianity, and they interviewed tons of people, and they asked the question, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Christians? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about the church? Statistically, 91%, I think these were like 35 and under young adults, 91 outsiders to the faith, 91% said the first thing that they think about when they think of a Christian is anti-homosexual. That's the number one way that non-believing people think about the church. Number two, 87% said we were judgmental. And a close third, 85% said that Christians are hypocritical. Now, uh, I've lived long enough to know that statistics aren't always accurate. Like, they don't always represent all that's going on. And these are generalities. I understand that. And so maybe we, maybe we don't all fit in here. But still, think about it. Who was it that Jesus railed against the loudest? Who? Judgmental, hypocritical Pharisees. So how has the church cultivated a reputation for the very thing that Jesus stood against? How did we get the reputation of embodying the very people that Jesus criticized the most? In Jesus' day, if you ask the average Joe or Joseph in Jerusalem to give you a one-word description of Jesus, I'm certain you would not get those three words. You would get words like loving, kind, compassionate, uh, merciful, wise, thoughtful, truthful, hopeful, helpful, healing, life-giving. Those are the kinds of words that a person would use to describe Jesus. My question is, why does the average Joe or Jane today describe Jesus with different words, why are we not described the same way as he is described if we are the physical presence of Jesus in the world today? What would have to change so that 5, 10, 15 years from now, if that same question were asked, 
What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about the church? Well, I would have to change for outsiders to say, when I think of Christians, I think of a group of people who love unlovable people. Like you can walk in, you can walk into a church, even though you don't, you're not, you're not anything like the people there. I mean, you can smell bad. You might be really messed up. Your past might be a mess. Your values might not match their values. Your morality might not measure up to their morality. Your lifestyle might even be the exact opposite of their lifestyle. But if you walk through the doors of that church, the people there will love on you like crazy. And even if you messed up really bad, they'll love you. They'll forgive you. In fact, you can sin like 70 times and they'll keep forgiving you. And if you're hurting or broken or beaten down, the people in the church will encourage you and they will lift you up. And if you have financial needs, they'll try to help. Yeah, the church is the most loving, generous place in my community. I'm telling you, if the local church had that kind of Jesus-like reputation in the community, yeah, people would be drawn to us like they were drawn to him. Hold that thought. Now, Luke 19. No, it's a familiar story, but I'm going to try to open it up and help you see it through fresh lenses. Uh, chapter 19, verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was very rich, and he was seeking to see Jesus. Now, that's interesting because Adam told me during the break that his guitar up here has a inlay, like a little pearl inlay or wooden inlay that's a sycamore tree, and on it he says, it says, I wanna see Jesus. So I thought that was really cool, really cool. All right, back to the text. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not see him because he was small in stature, so he ran ahead and climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And Jesus was passing that way. And when Jesus came to the place of, with a tree, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him. Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully. And when the crowd saw it, they all, all the good, upstanding, moral people, they grumbled and said, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And then the scene changes from outside to inside. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, I'll give half of all I own to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of God for the people of God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that this example of what it means to carry your presence forward in our world today would challenge us and encourage us. And I pray that as your church, we will take one step closer to embodying Jesus' presence in the way we love unlovable people. Holy Spirit, convict us and teach us how we can truly put Jesus on display in our community today. For it's in his name we pray, amen. So Jesus is traveling through Jericho, small village full of people from all walks of life. You've got the religious elite. You've got political leaders. You have good people and bad people. And everybody's come out to see Jesus. 
And as Jesus makes his way through town, he singles out this wee little man, Zacchaeus. And Luke gives us some interesting details about Zacchaeus. And in a short story like this, every detail or lack of detail matters. He says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and that he was very rich. Now, in talking about tax collectors back in Jesus' day, we don't really have a modern equivalent, a modern category for these people. I mean, if you've been in the church for a while, you know that tax collectors are bad folks. But that's about it. We, we really don't have a tangible parallel today. I mean, they're not just shady IRS agents. Uh, they're not just greedy, dishonest people. The problem is, and this is a good thing, the problem is we don't know what it's like for another country to take over our country violently and for one of our own to sell out and work for the oppressive country that's occupying our nation. We don't know what that's like, thankfully, in America at least. Back in the day, tax collectors were seen as being on the same plane as thieves and traitors and murderers. Their occupation was seen to be worse than Camel drivers and gun collectors. We don't really have categories for that either. But, 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 but the point is, because they were guilty of religious and political treason, storing up treasure for themselves by ripping off their own people, the Jewish religious leaders said they were past the point of repentance. The religious leaders taught that there are a lot of bad people out there, and those people can repent and God will accept them back and welcome them back and God will forgive them, but tax collectors were beyond repentance. And it's even worse than that. They were known for living extremely immoral lives. So in other words, they were guilty not only of breaking the law of Moses, they were guilty of violating pretty much everything Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And about the, about the only way that we can get our heads around just how bad these tax collectors were is to recreate some kind of modern-day equivalent, kind of like um, uh, think of somebody who is a drug dealer selling drugs on an elementary school campus, and then add to that somebody who's a pimp with prostitutes working for him, and add to that, he also runs uh, several internet porn websites, and he takes all the money from those corrupt businesses, all the profits, and he sends them to the Middle East to fund ISIS. But the only way that we can understand what the reputation of a tax collector was back in the day is to pile all these things together and let the thought of it disgust you. But Luke gives us more detail. He says he was a chief tax collector, meaning that other, he had other tax collectors working for him. He stole from them. But this guy isn't just personally corrupt. He has a whole corrupt enterprise that he's running. He has no friends. He's not a friend of Rome. Rome only care, the Rome didn't care about him. Rome only cares that he gets his money in every month. He's completely rejected, completely shunned, diving headfirst into the most immoral life you can imagine. But he wants to see Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. And here comes Jesus, the big crowd following, people standing in their doorways to try to get a look at Jesus. And Jesus looks around at all the people in the crowd and he gets to a point in the street where there's this sycamore tree. He looks up and there's Zacchaeus perched out on the limb of the tree. And he stops and in front of everybody, he says, Zacchaeus, I need to stay at your house. 
Today, I need to stay. Come on, get out of that tree. Come down. I need to stay at your house. Now, you may know that in Middle Eastern culture, both back then and still today, to stay in someone's home and to share a meal with that someone was a powerful public sign of acceptance, of welcome, of relationship, of reconciliation, of peace and shalom, mikasa, sukasa kind of thing. I mean, you, you would never, unless you wanted to invite public shame, you would never extend hospitality to someone like Zacchaeus. But Jesus says, I have to stay at your house today. Of all these people, Zacchaeus, it's your house that I must stay in. And the crowd gets hostile. I mean, they start grumbling because they know what it means to come under somebody's roof. They, they know that, guilty, that Jesus is welcoming and accepting this guy. And it's, this is scandalous, absolutely scandalous. I mean, they don't have a category for a holy man hanging out with an unholy man like Zacchaeus. And so they're incensed, they're grumbling. And they're, some of them are having to rethink what they had previously thought about Jesus because they don't have a category. He breaks, Jesus breaks all the social norms and he looks up and he says, I have to, Zacchaeus, come on. I'm going to your house. I have to stay at your house. Now, uh, uh, this, this is kind of fascinating. When you start to think about this, if Jesus had looked at Zacchaeus, called him out of the tree and then called him on the carpet in front of everybody, you know, he looks up and says, hey, Get out of that tree and come down here. Stands him up in front of everybody. He's a, he's a wee little man, so Jesus kind of picks him up and shakes all the money out of his pockets. Who do you think you are, you little thief? You're greedy. You're stealing from your own people. You're living an immoral life. How can you call yourself a son of Abraham? You should be ashamed of yourself. I'm telling you, you're going to split hell wide open and no way will you ever enter the kingdom of heaven unless you repent. So right here, right now, you better turn or you're going to burn. Now, Jesus could have called him on the carpet like that. And here's what blows me away. If he had done that, Jesus would have been both truthful and just. There's nothing untruthful, there's nothing unjust about taking this wee little wicked man to the woodshed and throwing the, the, the book of Moses at him, shaming him, demanding that he repent. But Jesus doesn't do that. And the crowd gets upset because when it comes to bad people, the crowds will always prefer justice to grace. But if we know about a cross, then we must be known more for grace than justice. Since because of the cross, we, we have experienced grace rather than justice. So Jesus says, I must stay at your house. Now, I love this phrase because in the Greek, the Greek word is the word day. And in some translations, it says, I must stay at your house. In other translations, it says, it's necessary for me to stay at your house. Uh, I, like, I kind of like it's necessary better. But the Greek word day refers to something even, it has a punch to it. It's, uh, it, it refers to something that's under divine compulsion. It's like, it's, 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 a, it's a missional word like in Matthew 16, 
21, Jesus says, it is necessary that I go to the cross. It's necessary for me to go to Jerusalem and suffer, be killed, and be raised from the dead. It's missional. It's necessary. Why? Because it's written into the fabric of the divine mission. Jesus is like, I have no other option. This is the way God is moving. This is the way he's working. And I'm under orders to follow him. Or like in Luke 4, 43, he says, it's necessary day that I preach the gospel of the kingdom in other cities. Again, he's saying, this isn't an option. This isn't a choice. It's not a feeling. This is the creator who spoke the stars into existence, moving his mission forward in the world through that word. So Jesus looks and says, right here, right now, I'm under a divine, man, a divine mandate to stay at your house. Come on. Now, imagine the crowd saying, him? Uh, <clears throat> look, Jesus, we know you're new to town, and uh, maybe you don't know who this guy really is. Interesting, though, he did know his name, right? Uh, you, you might not know, know, know who this guy really is, but he's a thief. He's, Jesus, this guy's a traitor. He is immoral. He's the worst of the worst, and he doesn't deserve your time or attention, much less your love. And Jesus is like, I know, I know. He absolutely doesn't deserve one ounce of my love. And that's exactly why it's necessary for me to go stay at his house. Because it's absolutely necessary for you to see the heart of God toward undeserving sinners like this man. That's the mission. Now, what's fascinating, too, is if uh, when you... When you look at the story, if you have a red letter Bible, and I don't have one, um, but every, you know, red letter Bible, all the words of Jesus are in red. When you look at this story, you don't see a lot of red. Luke records Jesus saying only two things to Zacchaeus. The first is, uh, come, down, uh, come down, I have to stay at your house. And in the last verse, salvation has come to this house. That's the only things that Luke records Jesus talking about. Now, again, I can imagine that, okay, maybe Jesus doesn't want to shame Zach in public, but I can imagine Jesus walking through the doors, closing the door, walking into the house, closing the doors, Jesus saying something like, all right, buddy, you need to sit down. Uh, we, we need to talk. I, I didn't want to do this out in front of everybody, but seriously, man, you got a laundry list of sins here. I, we, you you got to work on these things, greed, idolatry of money. Uh, oppression and stealing from your own people, extortion. I mean, how can you call yourself a son of Abraham? And oh, by the way, that woman you're hooking up with, she's bad news. And you throw that in too. But Jesus doesn't say a word. He doesn't say a word. Why not? Because he's already preached a silent sermon on what he's come to do and how he's come to do it by publicly acknowledging how the God of the universe loves this sinner by coming into his home. He preached the sermon and how he treated the man by accepting his hospitality. And that blew Zacchaeus' socks off. Now, let me ask you a question. Does Jesus care about repentance? Absolutely. Jesus care about obedience? For sure. And he got both. How? Not by laying down the law, 
but by laying down love. And it's that love, that love without footnotes, that love without, yeah, but, or uh, that love without threats, you better this. It was Jesus, radical, unconditional, nothing else like it in this world, kind of love that brought Zacchaeus to repentance and obedience. And not just obedience. <laughs> I mean, Jesus walks in the door. He's not in the house very long. And Zacchaeus is like running around trying to sell all his stuff. He's gone. He's on Craigslist and eBay trying to sell stuff. And Jesus, and he says to Jesus, Jesus, I'm going to sell half of everything I own and give the money to the poor. And if I've stolen anything from anybody, if. <laughs> There's got to be a long list of anybody's there. But if I stole anything from anybody, I'll pay him back fourfold. Like if I stole $100, I'm going to pay him back $400. And what's interesting about that is that according to the Mosaic law, Leviticus 6, if somebody, stole, if somebody stole something from someone, they had to pay back what they stole plus 20%. In other words, you steal $100, you pay back $120. Eh, that's not too bad. I can, can afford that. You, you, listen, you can get compliance sometimes with the law. You know, like if you yell and scream loud enough, you might be able to get someone to comply, but if you want true repentance, if you want, if you want heartfelt, sell all your, sell half your possessions and give it to the poor, pay them back fourfold obedience. If you want that kind of obedience, that is only going to come in an amazing grace encounter with the Savior. Because, you, you see, we will not obey God until we first realize we are accepted by God. And we cannot obey God until we realize that we are loved by God. It wasn't Jesus preaching a sermon on extortion that led Zacchaeus to repentance. It was Jesus' radical, unconditional love for this man who probably never felt anything close to that love in his entire life. That's what motivated radical obedience. Never underestimate, never underestimate the presence and power of Christ embodied in the tangible, unconditional love of his followers. Now, I can imagine in a room like this, there may be some of you here that at some point in your life, you ran off the rails. You started really well, but then you just, you know, you, you just kind of... Your faith didn't mean as much as to you. You made some bad choices, and you ended up kind of far from God. And I would imagine you probably heard plenty of uh, sermons from well-meaning Christians telling you how you needed to repent and turn your life around. But you'd also say none of that, none of those sermons landed. In fact, they may have actually caused you to double down in your rebellion. I know... One young man, I'm just going to call him Zach. He was raised in a very godly Christian home. His parents were both leaders in the church. He trusted Christ, was baptized when he was 12 years old. And, but um, when he got to high school, he ran off the rails and just started living like the devil. And when he tells this story, he says that when he was 16 or 17, there were people in his life who, who talked to him, a lot of people, but there were two that kind of stood out. Both family friends. The first guy sits him down and with a stern look on his face says, do you know who your family is? Do you know how much your family loves you? Do you know how the way you're living is bringing shame on your family? Shame on you. 
You need to stop this right now. You need to straighten up. You're selfish. You're materialistic. You're immoral. You need to repent and turn back to God. But there wasn't anything in that sermon that made a dent in his hard heart. Sometime later, he bumped into another family friend. Actually, this guy was one of his Sunday school teachers from his early years, elementary school years. And the guy says, hey, can I take you to lunch? I just want to catch up and see how you're doing. And Zach's like, okay, here we go again. But he meets the guy for lunch. And this guy, when they sat down, he noticed he had kind eyes and he had a soft face. And the guy just talks to him. They talk about sports and music and common interest. And they just shoot the breeze. And the man asks him some questions, but not like interrogation type questions. He just asks about things that uh, Zach was interested in, and he asked questions about things that showed that he really cared about him. And then he said, Zach, you know, I, I love your family. They've been great friends to me through the years. And I love you, and I just want you to know I pray for you every day. And he says, here's my number. If you're ever going through some, I, I know you're going through some stuff right now, but if you ever get in trouble, if you ever need my help, day or night, if you need me, call me, and I'll come help you. And that was it. And Zach said, I wanted to race after that guy. I wanted to hang out with him all day. I wanted to keep talking. He said, that was the beginning of a turning point in my life. What, what was the difference? With the second man, Zach experienced a man embodying a Jesus kind of authentic, unconditional love for him. They met together a couple more times. Zach repented, repaired the damage with his family, all of which brought about a renewal of his faith. I'm curious, anybody live that story or know that story? Yeah, yeah. You know, Paul talks about this in Romans 2, 4. He says, do you not know that it's, the, that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance? Do you not know that God's kindness leads to repentance? We think repentance leads to God's kindness. He says, do you not know God's kindness re leads to repentance? I don't think we know it. Now, when we're studying through Romans, we, we, we know it. Because it's right there in the Bible, so you got to... You know, you got to know it's like right there on the. But we don't know it, or maybe we don't believe it when it comes to dealing with the Zacchaeuses that God brings into our life. We're more like, yeah, but, but if I if I show them grace and love, if I don't call them out for their sin, they'll think that their sin doesn't matter to God, and they'll think that I'm affirming and condoning their sinful lifestyle. Listen, I understand the tension. I feel the same tension myself. I understand the fear, especially if the Zacchaeus you're dealing with is a family member. Believe me, I understand that, but I'm telling you, after spending hours and hours in this passage and in, in the, with this message, I'm like, I understand the tension, but if Jesus wasn't worried about that, why am I worried about it? It's God's kindness in and through you, embodied in you, that the Holy Spirit can use to generate 
repentance in the Zacks of your life. It's God's kindness embodied in me as an individual. It's God's kindness embodied in us as a church as we leave this place and go back to our neighborhoods and workplaces and schools and community. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance and life change. Okay, finally, here's the something else that matters when it comes to church. All that was just introduction. <laughs> let, me, let me build up. I, still, I have to build up to everything. Let me build up. We know that the teaching of Jesus matters. That's why we read it and study it and seek to apply gospel truth to our life. We know that the truth of Jesus matters. We know that the mission of Jesus matters. It's right there at the end of the Zacchaeus story. Jesus said, this is my mission. I've come to seek and save that, those who are lost. That was Jesus' mission, and we're invited and called and challenged to be on the same mission with Jesus. We know his mission matters, but there's something else that matters, and this is huge. The way of Jesus matters. The way of Jesus, what are you talking about? The way of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus with Zacchaeus right here in this story. It's the way of Jesus with the immoral woman at the well in John 4 who was divorced five times and was living with a man who was not her husband. It's the way of Jesus with a woman of questionable morals who washed Jesus' feet with her hair at Simon's house in John chapter 7. It's the way of Jesus with a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 when Jesus says, I don't condemn you before he says, go and sin no more. It's the way of the father and the prodigal son in John 15 when he sees his son coming he, he goes out and gives him hugs and kisses, no lectures, no lectures, just kindness and love and tears. And it is his kindness that leads to his son's repentance. He wasn't repentant when he came back home. He was trying to figure out a way to work his way back into, into his father's house so he wouldn't be so poor. It was the kindness of the father that led to his repentance. That's the way of Jesus with fallen, broken people with messed up lives. What way? What way? The way of Jesus is mercy before judgment, grace before truth. Mercy before judgment, grace before truth. Now let's take them one at a time. Mercy before judgment. James, the half-brother of Jesus, understood this because he said in James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now where do you suppose he got that? From his brother, John 12, 47, 48, look at this. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I'm sending him directly to hell. No, no look, look, if he, does, if he hears them, doesn't keep them, I don't judge him. For I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, the one who rejects me and doesn't receive my words has a judge, and that judge is the word that I have spoken. And that word will judge him on the last day. Will there be a final judgment? Absolutely. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my words has a judge. The word I've spoken will judge him. But notice the phrase, on the last day. Not today, but on the last day. During Jesus' life and ministry, in his day, his way was mercy before judgment. Look at uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. 
He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. He's taking this as his text. Unrolling it, he opened it to Isaiah, where it said, The Spirit of Yahweh is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, what you might not know is Jesus didn't quote this passage from Isaiah in, in its entirety. Because Isaiah 61 says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. He set the oppressed free to proclaim to proclaim the year of God's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus left out the part about the day of judgment. I'm telling you, this is so important. If you're gonna understand the message of Jesus and the mission of Jesus and the way of Jesus, Jesus came to proclaim the year of God's favor, the year of God's goodwill, the year of God's Grace that anybody and everybody can come to the Father through him came to proclaim the year of God's favor, not the final day of judgment. We still live in the year of God's favor. And that's the good news of God's grace. Are you taking this in? The way of Jesus was and still is mercy before judgment. John the Baptist didn't know that. John Baptist preached both sides. He was an Old Testament prophet. We do not take our cues from the Old Testament prophets, and neither do we take our cues from John the Baptist. He didn't understand the true role of the Messiah. Jesus understood what God, the divine mandate that God had given him, and that is go in the highways and byways and compel the lost to come in, the least the littlest, the lost. I'm not judging you, come in, trust in me. That was the message. Mercy before judgment and then grace before truth, grace before truth. In John 1, John tells us that Jesus was with God and Jesus was God and he goes on to say that Jesus came and dwelt among us and John says we were completely blown away by his glory, his beauty, his greatness, which was what? Simply this, that he was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Sermon on the Mount, truth. Pharisees, truth. But when he related, when he encountered fallen, broken, messed up people who were far from God, his way with them was grace before truth. And that way shaped his teaching, that way shaped how he carried out his mission that the Father had given him. The question is, is his way our way? And if not, why not? If it was, I don't think those one word descriptions of the church today, homophobic, judgmental, hypocritical, would be the way people outside our faith would describe it. I mean, what would happen if they did that survey again some years from now, and the number one thing that people said was something like this. I don't really know what the church is all about. They sing songs and they, they do weird stuff, like they 
They eat these little teeny crackers that they're kind of bitter tasting and they drink grape juice out of these little chalices that are about an inch tall. Like, go figure. They dunk people underwater. They definitely live different from me, but all I know is that they're kind even to people who don't deserve it. Read a story a while back and it really shook me up. You can find it online. The title of the article is Two Lesbians Walk Into a Church. It's by a pastor, gospel teaching, gospel believing guy, John Burke. He wrote a book called Unshockable Love. The article comes from that book. The article tells a story about, about a girl named Amy, a young woman named Amy. She's a lesbian. She's in a relationship with another young woman named Rachel. They don't go to church. They have very little spiritual interest whatsoever, but Amy wakes up one day and just out of the blue, she says, hey, Rach, let's go to church today. And Rachel's like, church? We hate church and they hate us. Like, why would we go to church? And Amy says, well, come on, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. Their motto, and this is the motto at John's church, come as you are. Their motto is come as you, come as you are, but we, we know that that means come as you are as long as you're not gay. Push pause. Like you can be an alcoholic, you can be struggling with drug addiction, you can be greedy, you can be living with your boyfriend, but if you're gay, the rules change. Amy says, look, if we show up and they know that we're lesbians, if, and if they act disgusted and they shun us, we'll, we'll show them that their faith is a fraud. So they go, they go to church, and as Amy tells the story, she says, I came on a mission to shock people. So Rachel and I would hold hands. We would sit, snuggle up close to each other, like arms around each other. She said, but instead of disgusted looks of contempt that we expected, people met eyes with us and treated us like real people. Push pause. First, when I read that, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Like the, the church treated them like real people. But then my heart sank at the word expected. They expected looks of disgust. They expected to be shunned. They expected to be shunned by people who by no virtue of their own were plugged into the lifeline of grace. They expected to be shunned by people who know they deserve nothing but judgment, but who have found grace and forgiveness and salvation through the grace of Jesus. How does that work? But Amy said, instead of the disgusted looks of contempt, people met eyes with us and they treated us like real people. So we started going to church every week. We kept moving closer to the front each week, still trying to get a reaction Get this, so that we would be rejected sooner or later. <laughs> but she said, we couldn't shock people. So we stopped trying to shock people. And I started learning. Somewhere in there, Rachel broke it off with Amy, and Amy kept going to church. And she said, the more I listened and learned about the teachings of Jesus, the more I started to actually believe that God really did love me. She says, and in time, the more I believe that God could actually see something of value in me, the more I trusted him. She said, in time, as I continued to seek intimacy with Jesus, the lesbian struggles fell away. 
Amy got saved. She embraced Jesus. Why? Because she encountered the unconditional, humanizing love in Jesus embodied in the unconditional, nothing else like it in this world, love of his followers. She got saved, and today, Amy is on staff with that church, helping others to recover from all kinds of sexual and relational struggles. Never underestimate the power of loving people unconditionally. Never underestimate the power of walking in the way of Jesus Mercy before judgment, grace before truth. Never, never underestimate what God can do through a local church that seeks to be the physical, tangible presence of Jesus to people in their community. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, thank you for showing us more of what you're really like through the actions of your son and what he was really like. Forgive us for not taking the way of Jesus seriously. And Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction and correction to us and help us to be okay with the messy people that you bring into our lives. Help us to emulate Jesus in that we don't have to worry about being concerned that somebody's gonna think we affirm or condone a sinful lifestyle, but we just love them, we're just kind. We just be Jesus to him. And that looks different in all kinds of different situations. We understand that. But Holy Spirit, we desperately need to hear the message of Jesus and share the message of Jesus and be on mission with Jesus in this way. Help us to take one step closer today in Jesus' name. Amen.